0: Hey, I would like to encourage you, if you would, to uh, open your Bibles. We're going to be in three different passages today, and there'll be some other passages that I'll put on the screen that you can see, but three of them are a little bit longer than the others. And the first one is John 14. Uh, there is uh, always a Bible app event, and you can follow along on that and uh, follow that way. And really, Kelly, you can go home if you'd like. Coming for a second. Wow, she's a glutton. A glutton for punishment, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, there was another announcement I had. One of these flags is upside down. Yeah. And it's because it's sewn that way. And so, if you can figure out which one it is, let me know, because I'll be impressed. And second, if you have a sewing machine, let me know. (laughs) Now, none of you are going to pay attention, right? It's Argentina. The sun is upside down on Argentina there. So, yeah, we do need someone who knows how to sew to just kind of Turn that thing upside down so it'll sit on a pole, right? Okay? We've had these flags for 20 years. It's the first time anyone noticed. It was a military guy that noticed, though. You'd figure, right? Let's start over. Good morning. Open your Bibles to John chapter 14. There's a Bible app event for this message. You know, in Clearfield County, if uh, someone is talking to you about church and you say, I go to the Alliance Church. Um generally, they know what you mean by that, or at least they think they know what you mean by that. Because um, if they've been around, they've seen a lot of Alliance churches, and they talk to a lot of Alliance churches. Uh, there's uh, Beccaria. There's an Alliance church there. There's one in Clearfield. There's one in Coal Run. There's one in Coalport. There's one in Kerwinsville right here. There's one in Dubois. There's one in Clearfield. Did I mention that? There's one in Irvona and McFerrin, Mahaffey and Phillipsburg. The Alliance is pretty well known in this area. It's not the case in other areas. Uh, If you get out in the Midwest or even, you know, in the Deep South, Alliance churches are more far and few between. They're pretty concentrated in this area. So when you tell your, your friend, I go to the Alliance church, they have at least a point of reference, uh, and a framework to know what you're talking about. But they might say to you, so what makes your church different than my church or other churches? And that can be a harder question. Sometimes it's, well, the people are different. People in my church are miserable. People in your church are wonderful. Stuff like that, you know. Um, but what we've been talking about in three sermons, and this is the final one, the fourth, is just four kind of emphases that the Christian and Missionary Alliance uh, likes to be reminded of. I preach a sermon series like this every 10 years, and uh, it's just helpful to kind of keep us on track. You know, the alliance I did the math was was formed 135 years ago, and it was uh, really established uh, by a guy named Albert Benjamin Simpson. He was a Presbyterian pastor in New York City in the uh, latter part of the 19th century, the 1800s, and uh, he really wanted to know God more deeply, personally, and he really wanted to help people who had no a witness about God, no one to tell them about Jesus. He wanted to send people to tell them the message of Christ, the message of the gospel. And I don't know if you can imagine this, but just imagine being a pastor of a Presbyterian church in New York City and suggesting that you do something like that and getting a little bit of pushback. Yeah, he got a lot of pushback because change, people don't like change, right? And so Dr. Simpson just graciously resigned and he formed what I like to think of as a missionary movement. He didn't try to form a new church, he formed missionary movement that cooperated with existing churches and even with, with small prayer groups. He would write, uh, newsletters and things like that. And they'd be sent out and in, even in rural Pennsylvania, people would receive those in the mail. They gather together and they pray regarding, uh, the ministry that Dr. Simpson had going. And, and some of those small groups, I believe, later became churches. So that's kind of a, a neat story how some alliance churches were born. Simpson felt like there were four things that believers ought to anchor their, their hearts too. And, and first of those is Jesus is our savior. Second is Jesus is our sanctifier. Jesus is our healer. And the fourth one is Jesus is our coming king. And so we've covered the first three of those. Today, we're going to be speaking about the end times. We're going to be talking about Jesus, our coming king. And that honestly fits with communion, because when I think of communion, I think of the fact that Jesus was looking back at Passover and saying, I am the elements in this meal, and then he was looking at the present, I'm going to the cross tomorrow, and he was looking to the future, he even said to his disciples, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so he was kind of looking forward to um, that time when you and I and everyone else who trust Christ will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb and celebrate with him in person. Now, before I begin to speak about the end times, I want to talk to the people, particularly um, young adults and teens, um, who might be thinking, you know, Pastor Steve, I want Jesus to come back. I just don't want him to come back right now. Because I'm 19 years old, i got a few things I'd like to do with my life First. And I want to say this, if that is you, I don't think you should beat yourself up about that. I did when I was younger. I had this kind of pull and push inside of me, like if I was a real Christian, I'd be glad he'd come back, but I'm distracted by the things of the world. That's my problem. I I shouldn't have beat myself up that way. I don't think you should beat yourself up that way. I think a lot of us have felt the way you might be feeling. Second, I want to say, if that's you, just know this, that... The reluctance you may have as a Christian about the return of Christ is kind of a natural byproduct of being young in the faith. Eventually, your perspective will change, and you'll be glad that it did. It's just not that big a deal. So let yourself off the hook, you know. Preston, you're going to have a baby here. Your wife is, right? If you're thinking, I don't know if I want Jesus to come back to I hold that baby, I'm okay with that, and Jesus is too, right? Let yourself off the hook if you're bothered by that. Now that I have that out of the way, I just want to talk to you about kind of like some end times 101. You know, like, did you ever take uh, Algebra 101 or History 101? This is end times 101. Just basic thoughts about the end times. And the first thing I'm going to tell you is something you probably already know, that the end times is about the return of Christ. It is about him and his return. It's not about planets aligning so that I can remember, I think this happened in 97, There were some individuals I knew who were actually part of my church, and they were kind of wound up because they had learned, science says, that the planets, all of them, and Pluto was still on a a roll at that point, they were all going to be in a line together, and this would create such a gravitational force on the earth. It would rip the earth apart. There would be earthquakes in diverse places, and Jesus would be coming back. The end times is not about the planets lining up and tearing the earth apart. The end times is not about aliens taking over the planet. The end times is not about a zombie apocalypse. The end times is about Jesus doing what he said he would do, returning again. He said that again and again. One of my favorite places he said it is the passage you've opened to in John 14. He happens to be talking to his best friends, his followers, his disciples. They're together in the upper room. They're celebrating the Passover together. And he knows that in just a short time, they're going to witness something horrific. His arrest, his mock trials, his beatings, his crucifixion, his death, and his burial. And so he wants to prepare them for that. And in gentleness and tenderness, he says to them, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Did you catch that in verse 3? If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus is coming back, and the end times are about that. There are more passages as well that speak to this. Let me just give you one more that doesn't get a lot of a lot of uh, attention. When Jesus ascends into heaven, he's with his disciples in Acts chapter 1, and, and he tells them, you will be my witnesses in Judea, and, and to the uttermost, yeah, the whole thing. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then he's taken up into heaven and disappears behind a cloud. And they're standing there like, whoa, what just happened? And the men in white show up. It's not the men in black. The scripture says the men in white show up. And, and, and they say, this men of Galilee, they say, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The same way, physically, visibly, real, personally, him in the flesh. Jesus is coming back the same way he left. Now, I'd like to ask you to turn to the second passage I have today, and that's Revelation chapter 20. Revelation is easy to find, last book in your Bible. We're going to be at chapter 20. And what I want you to see here is that when he returns, when Jesus returns, the end times is really all about... Everything being set right. The end times is about all being set right. I've asked this kind of question before. Are you bothered when someone is involved in a financial scandal and it seems like they're going to pull it off? I don't know if Brett Favre is innocent or guilty. I loved watching him play football. But he's been in the news lately because his name, at least, is associated with a group of people who misdirected, who stole $77 million that was supposed to go to help the poorest of the poor in America. And somebody stole that. Does that bother you? It bothers me. And when I look at it, there's a cynicism in my life that's based in experience that says that they're probably going to get away with it. They'll probably just get their wrists slapped. Does that bother you? When people are found guilty of stealing or cheating or hurting the most vulnerable among us or murder or whatever, and there's no repentance, no remorse, no contrition, and no repayment, does that bother you? If it does, let me just tell you, that's going to be set right. That's going to be set right in the end. Are you bothered when someone does something wonderful and nobody notices it? You know, maybe they give their time or they give their money or their assistance or, or they change their life path or they give their very life and it's not in the media, there's no thank you given, there's no real notice of it, no, no reward ceremony to happen. Does that bother you? If it does, I want to tell you, that will be set right in the end times. The end time judgments are really pretty complex Since this is N times 101, we're not going to dig real deeply. We're just going to read in chapter 20 of Revelation, five verses starting at 11. So Revelation 20, verse 11. John is seen into the future. He says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. Get a picture of that. I got to tell you, if heaven and earth are running away, What's about to happen is a pretty big deal. Verse 12, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire? is a second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Let me just make uh, some quick observations here. First, no one, no one escapes the judgment. Great and small, whether on land or on sea, no one escapes standing before the throne of God. <laughs> Things will be set right at the end of the age. Here's a second observation. There is a judgment that is according to works. People who have done good, they find a reward. People who have done evil, they face punishment. That doesn't mean that anyone is ever saved by good works. Your salvation is not a matter of good works. It never was. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 clearly says, for it is by grace that you are saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast, not by works. Revelation 20 is not saying to get into heaven, you need good deeds. What it is saying is this. In the end times, things are set right. Things are made right. Third, it's essential that you see that the judgment, this the foundational judgment, concerns the Lamb. The Lamb, of course, is Jesus. You remember John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he pointed at Jesus. His book is spoken of, the Lamb's book is spoken of in verse 15. It says, anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. And you may be saying, that just says the book of life, Pastor Steve. It doesn't say anything about the Lamb. But if you look ahead in Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven, that book is given a more descriptive label. Speaking of the New Jerusalem, it says nothing impure will enter it, nor will anyone who does anything shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The foundational judgment concerns the Lamb, Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is, it says in Revelation, the Lamb who was slain for our sins, With his blood, it says in Revelation, he purchased people for God. And his book, the Lamb's Book of Life, has the names of those people who were purchased by his blood. If you're trusting in the blood of Christ to pay for your sins and naturally responding to that gift in a meaningful way, you are his and he is yours. And that judgment, you have eternal life everything is set right into the end of the age. Now, as we prepare for communion, I want to talk to you about <laughs> this return of Christ and what's so great about it. What's so great about Christ's return? And I have three or four things I want to share with you. They're kind of in a random order. The first one we've kind of already talked about, when he returns, he rewards the faithful. It says in Matthew sixteen twenty-seven, Jesus speaking about himself says, for the son of man is going to come into his father's glory. I'm sorry, let me say that again. For the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they have done. So that person that taught you Sunday school, when Jesus comes back, he's gonna reward her or him. That person that served in children's church, Those people that hung these flags, the people who called the sick and the lonely and cared for them, even those who have visited in the prisons, he rewards them when he returns. Christ's return is great because he rewards the family. I'm sorry, he rewards the faithful. The second, it's great because he gathers the family. So when I was growing up, I grew up on a farm, and that farm had been in my family's possession for i don't know four or five generations i lost track along the way and so whenever there was a family reunion we all came to the farm and came into my mom and dad's house my mom and dad had a very simple three-bedroom farmhouse just a small house there were times we had 70 people in there (laughs) because it was a pretty big family you know we always wanted good weather because then they could be out in the yard floating around but when it rained buddy we were all stuck in that little house together it was a good time (laughs) i miss those days And I miss most of those people, not all of them. (laughs) But I'm, yeah, family, right? I miss those people. Many of them have passed away. Many of them who were good people, who knew Jesus, they passed away, gone ahead of us to heaven. I have another family reunion scheduled with them, you know. (laughs) Jesus will gather us together. In Matthew 24, 31, It says he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Think about that for a moment. Do you have people who you loved, who loved Jesus, who are gone? Who doesn't, right? Who doesn't? Do you miss them? Who doesn't? Who doesn't? (laughs) Well, when Christ returns, there's going to be a trumpet. And he's going to bring us all together in a family reunion, in a grand house, at a grand banquet called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And I can't wait for it. That's one of the things that makes the return of Christ wonderful and great. No more loneliness no more pining, (laughs) no more feeling forsaken or abandoned or even alienated. Christ's return is great because he gathers a family together. And his return is great because he takes us to our eternal home, to our forever ever home. This world is, we complain about it a lot, but it's a pretty cool place. I mean, if you've traveled around and you've seen the Grand Canyon or you've been in the Rockies, or even if you turned on TV and saw pictures of Alaska, you know, you're like, wow, this is an amazing place. The world is a wonderful place, but it is not my home. It's not my home. We read earlier, my father's house has many mansions in it, Jesus said, if that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And we look forward to that. Our very dissatisfaction that we feel in our heart With this world, hints that we are made for something more. We're like children, orphaned, who are waiting for our adoption to be finalized. We long for a forever family. Christ's return. That's when we experience that, when we realize it. And Christ's return is great because he brings about what we've hoped for. The Bible calls Christ's return a blessed hope. It says that in the book of Titus in chapter 2, verse 13. It says, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who himself, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Hmm. We wait for this blessed hope of his appearing. Think about it for a moment. Our hunger for something beyond this existence is kind of a strange thing to have. It's strange that you and I, when we hear of heaven, or even when we don't know about heaven, if we didn't know about heaven, would still have this yearning in our heart for something beyond the temporal, for something eternal. The fact that that occasionally you don't feel at home here, that there must be something more, that there must be something other, that there must be something greater, it's kind of weird. It's kind of like a fish that's in water saying, I kind of like the water, but I feel like there's got to be something better for me to be swimming around in. That would be crazy for a fish to feel that way. Unless, of course, there was something better for that fish to swim around in. Hmm. I'm not saying you're a fish. I am saying that you were made for something more. We we hope for something more. We hope for righteousness to reign and for evil to be extinguished. We hope for justice to prevail and for inequity to be dissolved. We hope for freedom to abound and for bondage to be gone. We hope for love to shine forth and for hatred to die and be gone. All those things that we hope for, they are come to pass in a return of Christ. A friend of mine from another denomination, we were talking about the end times He happened to be a millennial. He said, you guys that are always talking about the return of Christ, you're just lazy. We were good friends, so he could tell me that, and I didn't punch him. You guys are just lazy. You're just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back and solve all the problems. That is absolutely ridiculous. And I told him so. Simpson (laughs) noted that Our hope in Christ as coming king actually creates a healthy mentality as we hope in his return. Because first of all, it moves us to be ready. Are you ready to meet Jesus? I hope you're ready in the sense that you're trusting in Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to take away your sin. That's how you are ready to meet Jesus. That's the fundamental readiness that each of us needs. To have come to a place in your life where you say, I know I've done bad things. I am not proud of them. I understand Jesus that when you died on the cross, you died to pay for my sin. Please forgive me, God. Jesus paid it all. I trust him and I will follow him. That is the fundamental way to be ready for Christ's return. But there's a second kind of readiness. Uh, I really don't want to meet Jesus empty handed you know what I'm saying? (laughs) I mean, you go to see somebody, you go to visit them. Sometimes it's nice to take a gift. I'll bring dessert. I really don't want to go to to meet Jesus empty-handed because I want to hear these words. Well, man, I can't say them because I so want to hear them. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Wouldn't that be cool to hear that? Wouldn't that be cool to hear that? Not everyone will hear that, you know. Look at the parables. Think of the parables that Jesus told. Stories of the servants who were entrusted to take care of this while the master is gone. And in a sense, Jesus is gone. And he has entrusted to us care. He's made us stewards or caretakers. And clearly we are his servants. And I ready myself for his return (laughs) <laughs> by serving him. I ready myself for his return by by using what's given to me by him, I use it for him. To glorify him. That's why we do what we do. That's why Christians do what we do. Checking on our shut-ins, making sure they're well. We do that because we love them and because we're readying ourselves for the return of Christ. Working in children's church, or nursery, or Sunday school, or in the youth group, or Bible fun time. We we do that so children will learn on their own level. We do it because we love them, and because we are readying ourselves for the return of Christ. Participating in outreach events by supplying popcorn or little bags of hot chocolate and putting whatever needs to be on them on them, bringing your train and sitting with it and smiling, talking to the people who are there. We do that because we care about people and because we are readying ourselves, readying ourselves for the return of Christ. Treating people in our lives, people we work with, the people we work for, our family, our neighbors, that guy that drives you crazy, that woman that just makes you mad, treating them with respect and decency. We do that because we love our neighbor as ourself and because we are readying ourselves for the return of Christ. The return of Christ, it creates a healthy mentality in our lives. It helps us to be missional, one more passage to turn to, chapter 24, Matthew. Can you get there? Matthew 24, please. This concept I'm going to share with you is a significant alliance distinctive. Not a lot of church talk churches talk about this the way we do or focus on it. If you read your Bible, you know clearly it tells you nobody really knows when Jesus is coming back. Jesus himself says no one knows a day or the hour, not even the Son of Man, but only the Father. He, he knows it. I mean, I don't know how you can emphasize that any further. So whenever you, then to say, if you're God in the flesh, to say, I don't even know that. I I don't think anybody knows that. I know no one else knows that. So when you hear someone talking about some new sign in the heaven or some planetary alignment or, or some government treaty that's been entered into by government and union or this or that or the other thing, just don't get excited. Just do what you know you're supposed to do. Do what you're supposed to do. Because those who feel that they know, they're, they're really, uh, they're kind of confused. However, however, there is a passage of scripture that seems to indicate that you and I can pray, play a role in the timing of Christ's return. Uh. Huh? Did you hear that sentence? I'll put it on the screen. You play a role in the timing of Christ's return. Let's read Matthew 24. We'll pick it up at verse three. Jesus is talking to the 12. You're gonna see he, you're gonna think, but he's talking to the 12. But when you read his words, you realize they're far more far-reaching than just these 12 men's life. We'll pick it up in verse three. He just spoke about the future. And it says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines, earthquakes in various places, All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Did you catch that last verse? Did you hear what that said? (laughs) A lot of what we just read there, we have no influence regarding a lot of what we just read there. I can't control wars. I can't even control rumors of wars. I have absolutely no influence over famines, and even less influence over earthquakes persecution, that's outside of my realm of mastery. I can't make it happen or make it stop. And I can help people, but I can't stop a person who is dead set on turning away from the faith. No matter how hard I try, I can't fix that. I can't silence false prophets I've tried. (laughs) And when someone's love grows cold, wow, only the spirit of God can fix that. But there is one thing that I can do that was spoken of here. Look at verse 14 on a screen. In this gospel, the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations represented by all these flags here in this building and more. And then the end will come. When does the end come? When the gospel of the kingdom is preached to the whole world. That's a huge reason that we do missions. <laughs> we do missions so people can be saved absolutely we do missions because surely the lamb who was slain deserves his award his reward we do missions so that god will be glorified good night we do missions just cuz he said go into all the world and preach the gospel we just do it out of pure obedience but we do missions cuz we want to bring back the king we want to bring back the king And it would seem that we play a role in the timing of his return. It's one of my favorite stories (laughs) that I've told you before. Do you have them numbered yet? My children always had my stories numbered. I haven't told this one for a good long time. I would tell it to you every Sunday if you would let me. It's a story from the presidency of John F. Kennedy. It seems that the president in 1962... While he was still alive, (laughs) obviously it's not after he's dead, right? You picking up on that? In 1962, he was touring the NASA Space Center, being given a tour by some of the engineers and the executives that were there. You may know historically our nation was in hot pursuit of being the first on the moon, and he laid that down. But I'll tell you what, you want to hear good speaking? Go watch the video on YouTube of JFK at Rice University. We choose to go to the moon I get goosebumps just saying the title of the speech. He had laid that down and said, we're going to the moon. And now he's touring this massive space center from where they're going to launch. And as he's going through there, Kennedy noticed a gentleman who happened to be walking. He had a broom in his hand. And the story goes that Kennedy stopped and said, hold on, I'm going to go see this guy. And when you're the president, the tour guide lets you do that. And so he walked over and he stuck out his hand and said, hi, I'm Jack Kennedy. What do you do here? And the guy with the broom said, I'm helping put a man on the moon. Isn't that a great story? Isn't that a great story? I love that story. I am not helping put a man on the moon. I am not trying to fill my life with every fun activity I can think of between now and the time I die with the idea that I sure don't want to die and not have done this fun thing. I am not about that at all. I am not living on a spiritual recliner Just with my hands folded, waiting for Gabriel to blow his horn. You know what I'm doing? I'm bringing back the king. I'm bringing back the king. And you can help bring back the king. You already do, probably. I mean, you do it by praying faithfully for IWs. Remembering them in prayer. Taking that little picture of them and putting it on your refrigerator pausing at your refrigerator and saying, oh God, care for them, make them successful. You do it by teaching children so they get it. You do it by participating in Bible studies and worship times and sharing what you're learning with other people. You know, the guys will tell you this in any small group, and the men and women alike will tell you this in any small group they've ever taught, they get more from one another than they do from me. And I love that. I love that because they're bringing back the king. You do it by giving sacrificially to help people who can go where you cannot go to do their mission and make their burden lighter. You do it by encouraging IWs when they're here and saying, hey, I'm glad you do what you do. Hey, I pray for you regularly. Hey, I'm glad you're back at our church. It was great to see you last time. I can't wait to hear you speak. And then by following that up, I had an IW say to me recently, he, he sent me a mess, an email, and it was personal. It wasn't one of the ones he just sends out. And he said, Steve, every time we send out a bulk email, you reply. I love that. This is him speaking. I love that. You know what I'm doing? I'm encouraging him, and I'm bringing back the king. <laughs> you want to bring back the king? And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. I want to ask the musicians to come up. We're going to take communion in a couple minutes. So we'll have them come up at this time. I want you to think, as the music we'll be playing here in a moment, I want you to think, how important is bringing back the king to me What role does bringing back the king play in my daily experience or my interaction with people I know or my connection with my church family? What am I doing to bring back the king? How can I do what God wants me to do? And then I want you to just talk to him in prayer. You know, we always say one should examine oneself before eating the bread or drinking the cup. And that's why we play so quiet music. I want you to add into that personal examination a question for God. I just want you to say, God, what do you have in mind? Because I really want you to come back. I want to bring back the king. What do you have in mind for me? And then just listen to him. So Laurel, as our sole uh, keyboardist here, would you play a verse and a half of something that we can have that quietness of spirit. And you take a moment to just bow your hearts and ask God that, that kind of question. Lord Jesus, we, we know you are not a mute idol, a, a God who's unable to communicate, and you speak very clearly through your word. We desire that your spirit would speak to us about the role we might play in bringing back the king, about the roles we are to play in bringing back the king. We desire more than this world. We desire you. Tomlin's right. You are our reward. As we seek you, speak to us in Christ's name. Amen.